Well, it is a good thing that Nancy did not have many announcements, because I'm preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning. So we're going to have to move uh, with a... (laughs) You can announce as much time, you can take as much time with announcements as you want. It it won't cut into how much time I take, I assure you. Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's going to be difficult to do this. Uh, I can't even read the two books uh, in the time that we have allotted, let alone go through them. So most of the exegetical work, that is most of the reading and exposing, you're going to have to do uh, on your own. I do want to just draw your attention to a few things. And so this is also something which makes me uncomfortable. Uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed, if you've been here for any length of time at all. Uh, A lot of pastors, when they're taught how to preach, a class that I never took. Uh, they, they're taught that you know you're supposed to have a good framework, like you're supposed to have like points, and uh, so you, you, know, you have three points. And as Sam will say, like in his generation, it was three points in a poem. You know, you're supposed to have three points and a, and a, a little ditty at the end uh, that that draws it all together. Uh, I have never been accused in my sermons of having points. Uh, I have I've often, repeatedly, uh, had comments afterwards like, that seemed awfully pointless. Uh, and, and sometimes it is. Uh, but, but today, uh, I have points. Ten of them. Ten points. Uh, not all of equal merit, uh, but they're, they're there nonetheless. And so what I want to do is I just want to draw your attention just to a few things as we go. I'll, I'll make some comments textually, and then I will tell you what the point is uh, at the end of that particular unit, so you can be guessing uh, as we go. It'll be somewhat entertaining. Now, I'm not awfully good at math, but if I spend five minutes on each point, then that's 50 minutes. But you can't really make a point in five minutes, so I'm going to average about 10, just so you know. Before we start, let's pray. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Our Father, because of what your Son has done for us, we will praise you forever. We will honor you and love you with pure hearts, with a purity of heart that we cannot, uh, we cannot even imagine it now. We can't fathom what that will be like. And yet one day, finally, we will have purity of heart with which to love you, our God and King. Make us pure until that day. Uh, By your Spirit, work in us to make us as much like Jesus Christ as we can be in this world. Give us great wisdom. Give us great love uh, for you supremely, but also uh, genuinely and deeply for one another. Father, I pray that you will draw us and connect us and unite us. I pray that you will truly make us one in a way which defies all natural explanation. Make us one in such a way that we really do live out and experience uh, that, that metaphor which has to have a concrete referent, that we are one body, that we are the body of Christ, 
that we belong to one another. We are each members of one another. Help us to honor each other. Help us to love each other. Precisely because we love you. Because we are following you and in following you, one of the great surprising delights is that we run into other people who are following you too. Lord, these are gifts beyond our wildest dreams and certainly beyond our deservings. But we thank you for them. I pray that you will lead us forward in grace. I pray that your spirit will guide us this morning. I pray that you will give me uh, some semblance of, uh, for me, unnatural succinctness uh, to be able to move through material uh, which is wide and broad. Help me to know what to say and what not to say. Uh, May you be honored and may we understand your word better, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Here we go. Uh, First, this isn't one of the points. This is just for free. It's more of an announcement. It doesn't count for my time. Uh, Structurally, it is important to recognize that Ezra and Nehemiah constitutes one book. Uh, In fact, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that it was split into two. So you're supposed to read this as one unit. Uh, There are themes that run through the whole thing. They're contemporaries. They're working together to rebuild the city. It's very important also that you recognize this. Uh, Two scholars, uh, Raymond and Dillard, uh, very helpfully uh, have have written a book, uh, sort of an introduction to the Old Testament. And they note about Ezra and Nehemiah, something which I think is, is very helpful. They said, when you read these, this book, singular, uh, you need to understand that Nehemiah and Ezra are building two walls. We're familiar with Nehemiah building the city wall, the physical wall for defense. But Ezra is building a spiritual wall of protection around the people. Both are absolutely critical. So what you have here is not just the rebuilding of the city wall. You have the rebuilding of the city, that is, the people. Ezra is building the people. Nehemiah is taking care of more of the physical city in which they dwell. So two walls are being established. Two walls are being shored up. The physical and the spiritual. You need both. And, but it's the spiritual that is most important. Obviously, when the people weren't, didn't have a spiritual wall, the physical walls were destroyed. Uh, so you need both. But the spiritual one has to have priority. Now let's start in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 seems the the logical place. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, if you read verses 1 and 2 carefully, and you have paid attention to how Second Chronicles 36 ends, you can't help but notice they're identical. That is, this is clearly a verbatim connecting and tying together of these two books in one narrative. 
it's not just that Chronicles ends showing you why the exile occurred and that God is now allowing a second exodus. It's that Second Chronicles ends and Ezra and Nehemiah is the continuation of the same story. It's the same narrative. In the same way that Luke-Acts ought not to be split up. Luke-Acts is one work, really. It's the continuing story. Now notice, though, that it's in verse 1. Um, it's Cyrus, king of Persia, who makes this proclamation. And the reason he makes this proclamation is to fulfill Scripture, but he fulfills Scripture because the Lord moves his heart. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. In verse 5, we're told that everyone whose heart God had moved goes back up. That's lesson number one. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over world events because he is sovereign over individual hearts. The Lord moves the heart of the king of the superpower of the day to do something on behalf of his own people. That's what God does. That is absolute sovereignty. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it as a watercourse wherever he pleases. Book of Proverbs. God is in utter absolute control over the hearts of kings. But the point in Proverbs, of course, is that if God controls the heart of the king, then obviously God controls the heart of the, the, you know, the, the, the baker and, and the candlestick maker and the cobbler and everyone else. I mean, if, if God moves the heart of the king, then whose heart doesn't God have access to? That's the point. And so here what you find is that God is equally able to mobilize an entire people to do what he wants as he is to move the heart of the pagan king. In fact, fascinatingly, in the book of Isaiah, this king Cyrus is called God's Messiah. He is God's anointed one. He's anointed by God for the special purpose of liberating his people. He's not the ultimate Messiah. But he is a messiah. He is Messiah anointed. Cyrus, my anointed one, God claims in Isaiah. The Lord is sovereign. When you look at world events, know that God is still in control. That's lesson number one. Now, look at verse 11 after listing of various, various things that are brought back. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shazbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, that little phrase, from Babylon to Jerusalem, is so simple. And yet that is one of the most important historical events in the history of the world. This is the second exodus. In fact, the prophets say this is a greater exodus than God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. The question is why? It's not that he does so with greater displays of power. It's because when God brought his people out of Egypt, he was liberating his covenant people from slavery. But now, if we've paid attention to Chronicles, now we know that these people have absolutely, utterly shattered and broken and defiled God's covenant. We talked about this last week. Some of you were wickedly away. Uh, and, and so it's so important, though, that, that they had broken the covenant. The covenant was over. It was done. 
There was no more grace. It was, it was by on the basis of law, they had violated the covenant and now stood under nothing but the wrath and judgment of God. The covenant was broken. And God brought them back. This was not an act of law. This was an act of loving grace. The people had no claim to this type of treatment after they violated the covenant of God. And yet, God brings them back. He undoes the exile. He establishes a new covenant. Uh, shockingly, God isn't finished with his people. The last word should have been, and, and Nebuchadnezzar sort of piped them off to Babylon, where they all lived and remained and died. That's the end. A story of absolute, utter, categorical ruin and failure because of the people's unfaithfulness. And that would be the end. If it wasn't for the grace of God, he brings them back. Exile and ruin and death is not the last word. The program of redemption impossibly carries on. So lesson number two, then, is that God has more grace than you can possibly imagine. You can end up with a broken covenant on your own, you can deserve nothing but exile and ruin and death, and it is what you deserve. And God brings you back. And God redeems, and God liberates, and God frees, and God heals, and God loves. Not because of your performance. Your performance is dreadful. But because God has grace, and God has love. I will just say this off to the side. This is neither a point nor not a point. It just is smuggled in for free. Consider it a leadership principles. It isn't. Now, you can get some great leadership principles out of the book of Nehemiah, such that when you're in charge of rebuilding a city wall, go and look at it at night. Great leadership principle. Apply that whenever you can. Uh, but it's not about Nehemiah as a leader. It's about the grace of God. Why is Nehemiah even there? He shouldn't be. It's impossible for any of them to be there except for the grace of God. Nehemiah is about God's grace, not human leadership. And you can learn a little bit about human leadership along the way. It's fine. Learn those lessons, but don't make it the dominant theme of the book. It wasn't written for Western CEOs. It was written as a testimony to people back from exile. This is our God. It's impossible that we're here. He's a God of grace. In chapter 2 through chapter 6, we'll take a larger section for you. They begin to rebuild the temple. And there's all these cycles of opposition. So they have to appeal to Darius. He's the king now. So look at uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. Chapter 6, 8 through 12. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do what you are to do for the elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. 
Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defiles this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change his decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Now, despite all of these cycles of opposition, what you have here is the people are actually given far more than they had in the first place. God's enemies will not prevent God from accomplishing his goals and purposes. They won't. Now, you'll notice in verses 15 through 18 that uh, you, you finally have sort of the date of when this temple is built. It took 21 years after laying the foundation. There was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of times when the work stopped. In the end, the king provided them even with the material they needed to build. So they ended up with more, but it took 21 years. Now, with the life expectancy in the ancient world, you have to understand that what that means is that there was a lot of people who came back from exile who, who started it but never saw it completed. There were a lot of people who died in Babylon, but there were a lot who went up from Babylon back to Jerusalem who never saw the day when this temple was completed. You will, of course, know that Gothic cathedrals took an awfully long time to build. And that was the one that actually didn't fall down. About 17% of them failed. That was the failure rate. If you ever wonder, how did they do that? The answer is 17% of them didn't know how either. Uh, they were the ones who were trying. Uh, how did they do that? We don't, we don't really know, but a lot of them took centuries. The average Gothic cathedral took over two centuries to complete. Two centuries. Now, there are a variety of reasons for that, right, that, that we, of which we are aware but one of the things that they wanted was they, they, they wanted it to be done right because they wanted it to be a theological representation of heaven. That's why your, your, your classical sort of Romanesque architecture, thick walls, rounded arches, small windows, dim spots inside, etc., etc. Uh, but the Gothic cathedrals, high pointed arches, Everything draws your eyes up. And light, God is light. In your love we see light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That, all that light metaphor, the heavens filled with light, the medieval worldview of the universe, so beautiful, so opposite to the sterile one that we have today. They wanted a place where God would, would dwell especially in the Roman Catholic view, that God would come down, that Christ would come into the Mass. We wanted a, a royal home for Christ. So why, even though you could bicker about it, all the accoutrements were made of gold and precious metals, because the king deserved no less, was the argument. Filled with light, high-pointed arches, flying buttresses, new, new types of supports, and all the rest. Because God was worthy of it. Because to do something for God, it didn't matter if you lived to see it completed. If, if it took 
Tillman took over 300 years of pretty consistent work. Some of them took a lot longer than that with inconsistent work. Can you imagine being, being the architect designing that? Some say, what are you doing? Well, I'm just, just, just whipping up a cathedral, hoping to be part of the 83%. Oh, really? Um, it, must be, it must be an amazing thing to look forward to seeing this. Oh, I'm never going to see this. No, I, I calculate that I'll probably be dead before the foundation's laid. Well, that's pretty noble, you know, to, to serve your, your children. No, 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 they're not going to see it either. Oh, your grandchildren. No. Great-grandchildren. No... Hopefully by their time we'll we'll have figured out a little bit more about this whole flying buttress thing, you know. Well, well, when? Well, I don't know. I don't know. This is going to be completed. It's not. It's, it's for sure not going to be my lifetime. But that doesn't mean that I don't work. It doesn't mean that I don't prepare the way. I might not be the person who benefits from this when it comes to fruition, but someone has to lay the foundation. Someone has to make the road plain. Someone needs to do the weeding. Someone needs to go out and prepare the way for the king. That's what someone needs to do. And and, and if I never live to see the consummation, that's fine. By God's grace, I'll play my part along the way. And there might be a lot of opposition, and for many of us, we might go through life, we might spend a lot of years in loneliness and pain. We might see a lot of good things that we'd like that will forever be denied us, and yet, we serve because we serve the King, and He is worthy. If it takes all of us hundreds of years of life and death and labor before there's a monument to His glory, so be it. He is worthy. And in the end, even working in a world where dreams are denied, the reality is that one day, one day the monument will be built and one day you will see the king. Remind me of that, that song. I'm going to say it's an old song, but that it's not that old. Old to me, but not old at all in terms of history. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. You can probably figure out how the rest goes. We are going to see the king. So lesson number three. When God decides to bless... Opposition and hardship may come, but they cannot derail his plans forever. His forever plans are joy all the way down.
the entire way. Chapter 7, verse 8. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. If you have any success at all, it's only because of the gracious hand of God. Why, though? Verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. When I, when I became a Christian in my first year at university and um, was given the immense privilege of beginning to teach Bible studies to teenagers on Wednesday nights in a church basement, not having any idea what I was doing, just like this morning. When, when my friends wanted to be, you know, a, a hockey player or famous actor or whatever. I wanted to be Ezra. I think this is pretty great. He devoted himself to the study, but not just the study, but the observance. See, it's not the same thing. You can study, but not observe. And one of the most painful things in my life is, is how frequently I have confused those two things. Study is not observance. Knowledge is not practice. There can be an enormous, enormous gap between what we know and what we actually are. I've experienced so much of that. Uh, knowledge of what God's Word says so far outstripping my faithfulness to it. But as we devote himself to the study and to the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That is, that is, the desire is to know God so you can help other people know God. It, it's not just a selfish sort of thing. It, it's that so you can actually understand God's work. So there'll be times, there'll be so many times when people need to hear the word of the Lord. And we need to be equipped to share God's truth with people uh, whenever we have an opportunity. He devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees in Israel. May God help us to be a community of priests that can do that for one another. Uh, most of us will not be able to do that in sort of this sort of public way. But the reality is, you know, you, 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 I've been preaching here for about six and a half years, and the number of things I have said from the pulpit that you remember, you can write down on this much paper if you remember anything at all that I have set up here. And that's just the truth. But you also know how meaningful it's been in private conversation when someone has shared with you a word from the Lord. You've never forgotten that, have you? You've never forgotten the kindness and care when a friend shared with you God's truth in a private way. We need to be a community of people who blesses each other that way. May God help us all to be like Ezra to one another. So lesson number four. We must look to God's word. We must obey it. And we must share it with others. Now, chapters 9 through 10, the end of the book, uh, 
the people have intermarried with pagans. They're integrating into religious syncretism again. And this is fairly disastrous, uh, sort of recapitulating the same sins that brought about the exile. You might not want to do that again. Uh, and so lesson number five. This is a short one. This one's obvious because I'm not getting into all the politics of what goes on here. Lesson number five is this. Where there is sin, you need to repent. That's simple. Okay. So God is very gracious. God will bring you back. God will restore you. God will bless you. But where there is sin, you need to repent. Okay. You need to turn away from it. I will have something more to say about that in point number nine. Mainly because I really didn't have ten points, so I had to use one twice. We'll get there later. Now, the book of Nehemiah. Chapters, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. You can read the rest of his prayer on your own. The walls are broken down. There's disgrace. And so Nehemiah, knowing this is bad for the people, but also a bad reflection on God in the sense of what people will think about God, he prays and he fasts and he mourns. Now, quite, we are quite familiar with his quick prayer in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. So when Nehemiah, the cupbearer, is about to give the king you know, his, his, his goblet. Uh, the king asks him something. Nehemiah immediately prays, Lord, help me, and then makes his request. Okay? Now, it's important to know that, yes, yes, you can pray with sort of that, that, that arrow-type prayer. You can pray in one second. Yes, you can. But that's rooted in him praying night and day. That's rooted in him, in him mourning and fasting. I think, I think for a lot of us, you know, we want to say, well, you can pray to God any time. Yeah, you, you can. And, and, and I've, I've done that. I, I, have, I have adopted. I am going to pray to God all the time. And when I do that, I pray to God virtually never. You can pray spontaneously, and we all ought to, but that needs to be rooted in a deep and structured and intentional engagement with God. Now, I, I can't say that for you, but that, that's for me. I, I'm just not holy enough to just pray all the time without some thought about it. And so, yes, you can pray all the time. But here, this quick prayer is rooted in this long engagement with God. So, lesson number six. You do not have because you do not ask. Why is the wall broken down? Because no one's mourning. No one cares. No one's engaging God about it. Why, when is the wall built? When someone starts praying, when someone cares a little bit, when someone weeps about it. You know, we... we Get so bad of shape all the time with all the things that are wrong in society. You know, and when Christians get together, we just, we just wring our hands. It's all, everything's just so bad. Yeah, sure, sure. But where's the mourning? 
And, and where's the prayer? And where's the engagement? Where's the pleading with God? You are sovereign over the hearts of Cyrus. Act. We, we'd rather commiserate. We'd rather clap ourselves on the back. The world, the world's, you know, going to hell, but at least we're a righteous remnant and we can feel good about that. You know, we're the insiders, they're the outsiders. If everyone was more like us, well, stop thinking that. Start praying. Engage God. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, in chapters 2, verse 11, through the end of chapter 7, you have a lot more work. I mean, there's overlapping themes. It is one book, after all. Uh, there's a lot of work. There's organization. Again, there's opposition. Now, these guys who are opposing the, the people are just maddening. Right? They're, they're these little petty tyrants. Right? They're, they're these little know-nothing bureaucrats. Right? And, and they're all trying to get their own. That's what they want. They're just in it for their little piece of of the pie, their little kingdom. They're kind of like the mafia. Shift the analogy. They're like pirates, right? They're just trying to get their own. Now, stepping off just to the side for a moment. Because I feel courageous, I'm going to share with you something that you might find is a little bit weird. And that's all right. I prefer to think that it's different. When I was in high school, grade 12, my favorite movie was Muppet Treasure Island. <clears throat> Combining Muppets and pirates is just brilliant on so many levels. You, you can't go wrong. I love that movie. Now, I will say this. While well, all of my friends were enjoying their, or watching their rated R movies and all the rest, I would challenge you, what was your favorite movie when you were in grade 12? On the Day of Judgment, you might be a little bit more ashamed than me. <laughs> <laughs> Muppet Treasure Island. Fantastic lines, fantastic songs. In fact, there's a one line that's utterly iconic in my life. I think this frequently. I hope I've never thought it about you, but I can't promise. Uh, there's one character named Clueless Morgan, uh, who's a goat pirate, and he's always saying very unintelligent things. And so there's one scene where he, he, he's worried about these, these ghosts, these dead pirates, and, and he, sort of, he just sort of moans out, this is a cursed place. And Long John Silverstone gives him this withering look, says, now there's an informed opinion. And whenever I listen to people rabbiting on about things I don't think they know what they're talking about, inside. <laughs> probably on a, on a ratio of 100 to 1, because I do say it sometimes. I'll just think, now there's an informed opinion. Uh, this usually happens, actually, often when someone tells me some sort of alleged fact. I go, well, well it's interesting. I don't know that. Or someone gives me an interpretation. I I'm not sure that I agree with that. Well, well so-and-so said, and usually when I hear so-and-so said, that's where I stop. Oh. Now, there's an informed opinion, you know, trying to sort things out. So, that's an iconic thing that I think. Thank you, Clueless Morgan. However, that's not the point, unless you start thinking that about me as I wrap it on. There's this one amazing song in, in, this, in this movie that tries to show how being a pirate is actually a more noble profession than being a doctor or a lawyer or a financier or all sorts of other things. And it runs this way. Well, selecting. Selecting some lines for you. Now, take Sir Francis Drake. The Spanish all despise him. 
But to the British, he's a hero and they idolize him. It's how you look at buccaneers that makes them bad or good. And I see us as members of a noble brotherhood. Derek Rafune, you were saying that with me. Some say that pirates steal and should be feared and hated. I say we're victims of bad press. It's all exaggerated. We'd never stab you in the back. We'd never lie or cheat. We're just about the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. And at the end, final pitch to young Jim Hawkins, this cabin boy. They're trying to get to join them uh, as pirates. He'll be honest, brave, and free. The soul of decency. You'll be loyal and fair and on the square. And most importantly, when you're a professional pirate, you're always in the best of company. Now, I combine that with a story that actually has given me lots of thought over the years. You'll recall the famous anecdote of when Alexander the Great, the emperor who had conquered the known world, met a notorious pirate, finally tracked this guy down. He was arrested and he was going to be executed. And Alexander the Great decided to interview this pirate. And Alexander asked him, why should I let you live? And the man replied, I don't know. Because I command one ship and pillage and kill on a small scale, I am called a pirate. But because you plunder the world and destroy nations with a navy, they call you an emperor. I see no difference between our lifestyle. Perhaps if I had as many ships as you have, I would be called an emperor, too. You may think of Sam's relative, Grace O'Malley, known to history as the Pirate Queen in Ireland in the 1500s. To a lot of the Irish, Grace O'Malley, and I actually really like the idea of connecting the concept of Grace with the concept of a Pirate Queen, but Grace O'Malley, the Pirate Queen, was a hero to the Irish and a scoundrel to the British. But what was she? Would indigenous people around the world have preferred a few dozen pirate ships landing on their shores or the vessels bringing people over from Holland or Spain or France or Britain? What's worse? Perhaps, perhaps our indigenous peoples would have done better to meet pirates than emperors. So what about business executives? What about politicians? What about professors? There is so much exploitation and greed in this world. In this section of Nehemiah, 
Everyone is looking out for themselves. Everyone. You have the opposition of these petty tyrants. You have, uh, in chapter 5, you find that even, even the Jewish leaders are exploiting the people. They're, they're lending them things at tremendous usury and, and rates of interest. They're in it for themselves. Chapter 5 is about Nehemiah saying, come on! It, it, it's time, as God rebuilds this city, it is time to take care of the poor. This is not a time to be self-interested. This is not a time to look to yourself. So I guess the question is, well, well, what kind of a pirate are you? You know, are, are, you, are you someone who is going to fly the flag of, of self-indulgent greed? Or, or are you going to be the sort of pirate who, who, who resists sort of the, the systematic injustices of the people who legitimize themselves as emperors just because they have more ships? Who's looking out for the poor? Who's looking out for the sex slaves? Who's looking out for the kids in the Philippines? Who's looking out for these people? Who decided that any of this was okay? Who decided it was okay to be complicit? Who decided that we would maintain the status quo no matter what the status quo is? Now, there are times, there are times when a little bit of piratical rebellion is exactly what is called for. Not for self, but for others. And so lesson number seven, when God gives you an opportunity to serve him, serve others, not yourself. Chapter eight, one of my favorite sections because Ezra reads the book of the law. Now look at verse 3. This will, um, this will make what I'm doing a lot better. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Did you hear that? He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. And no one complained. In fact, there's a textual variant that says, and afterwards they voted him a big raise. But anyway, <laughs> you, you could, you have to know Hebrew to see that one. It's, it's there. Just, just trust me. He reads the law all morning. And the people celebrate. In verses 16 through 17, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with great joy. And then in verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God every day. They celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Lesson number eight. This book starts with Nehemiah praying, but as they develop, the focus is on scripture and worship and joy. So we pray and we deeply engage the word. Digression. Derek, this is crazy. How many degrees of a black belt are you? So, Derek, testing for a second degree as a black belt. Just, that's only several degrees lower than me, but you know, that's good for you. Um, so, so, if you think it's weird that I like him up at Treasure Island, talk to Derek. Okay? He'll, he'll start you out afterwards. Back, back to the text. So, in verses, chapters 9 through the end of 13, you again have 
the Israelites confessing their sin. They're to be grounded in the word and holiness. The walls are completed. They're dedicated. And again, you have the same problem at the end of, of Ezra, sort of this intermarriage with pagans and all of the rest. And please, don't be like Solomon. Don't be led astray. Listen to the instructions given to Moses and Joshua. And so here, lesson number nine is that repentance is perspectival. And by that I mean this. Repentance is both necessarily turning from sin and turning to God. That's what repentance is. When these people are called to repent, they're called to get rid of something and to go to something. God never calls us just to drop something in a vacuum. God never just takes something away from us. If there's something that needs to be given up, it's because God has something better to give us every single time. And so we turn from our sin, and we go to God. That's what these people are called to do. Forsake your sin, go to God. And the book ends with this verse fragment. Remember me with favor, my God. Remember me with favor, my God. Lesson number 10. If God is your king, then you can request and expect covenant faithfulness and blessings from him forever. It is not wrong to ask God, my God, remember me with favor. My God, see my state. My God, act with compassion and power. My God, that is not wrong. Request covenant faithfulness and blessings from God. Now, afterwards, without looking at your written notes, if you can meet me in the foyer and recount for me all ten of those points, Sam will take you out for lunch. I'm going to ask your musicians to come and lead us in. I'm actually tempted to ask Derek to come up, and he and I can lead us in a song, but uh, perhaps we'll, skip with this, we'll stick with the schedule uh, for this morning.